Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The happiness of London is not to be conceived but by those who have been in it. I will venture to say there is more learning and science within the circumference of 10 miles from where we now sit than in all the rest of the world. Samuel Johnson. So as usual, I've opened the front door and grabbed the first two likely-looking Londoners who happen to be out there. It does seem that everyone's got a story to tell. I think screaming does help as well. Ooh, yes, the Horniman Walrus. They dug out bodies in 1887, 1873. What did he look like when he came out the other end of that? Knackered. Got Sarah Palin coming. How do you feel about that? A little bit pathetic. <laughs> so we're in the parlour of Dr Johnson's house. One sees... A story that is both of protests and of coming together. So they're banning people from bringing food to homeless. Yeah, they're banning soup runs. You know, we weren't buckled by the terrorism. A word in your eye, don't worry or push. A step in the gate is worth two in the bush. Which area of ridiculousness do we start on with that story? Why would you give a medal to a pigeon? Listen, you're all idiots. You know, it's like cultural anything. No running, no throwing. This is pretty serious stuff. You engage with other people, you link across to other people. It's just huge. It's gigantic. <laughs> How many times have you done this so far? That depends. What, what do you think of that approach? I think that's terrible. London life is a really rich experience and there's a lot that's good about living Boris here. Johnson. He weighs as much as 40 school children. What a peculiar conversation. Hello, it's Friday, November the 30th, 2012. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud, a podcast of news, views, and curiosities from London, UK. You can download the show free on iTunes, hook up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud, or tweet me at Londonist Sound. Well, later on, we'll be finding out about the half of London who don't want to be in London. Uh, one of the major stories in the last week. With me here at Birkbeck College today are Professor Jerry White. He has more than a passing interest in London history. He's particularly interested in uh, 1700 to the present day. That's his period. He reviews uh, London books for the TLS and uh, The Guardian and is re- regarded as a London expert by The Guardian, Observer, Financial Times, the Cabinet Office, Treasury staff, you name it. Lots to talk about there and uh, a CV as long as your arm, perhaps not quite as long as that of Chris Moncrief. He's a British journalist. He was the political editor of the Press Association from 1982-94, joining the political staff at the Houses of Parliament in 1962 and becoming a, a lobby correspondent in 73. In November 2010, he was awarded a Diamond Jubilee Award for Political Journalism by the UK Political Studies Association on the occasion of their 60th anniversary. And uh, his, his other claim to fame is that the press bar in the House of Commons is named after him. Despite, I think, you're, you're a teetotaler, though, aren't you? Chris? I have been for 25 years, yes. I used to swell in Guinness, but no longer. 
<laughs> so no, uh, no irony there. Stephen Walter, our third guest, is an artist and his works are an investigation into the phenomenon of place, each work being an intricate world in itself, a tangle of words and symbols that make up a matrix of hidden meanings and wider contradictions. And we'll be exploring some of those and finding out exactly what that looks like in just a moment. Hello, you all. Hello. Hello. Where to start? It's actually been quite a, a slow news week. We've got plenty to talk about in terms of the, the history, the politics and uh, ways of representing London. I don't think we're going to be short of material at all. I'd like to come to you, Professor Jerry White, first of all. You have just come to the end. I can't quite imagine what this must feel like of a 15-year composition effort. You've completed a trilogy of books about London. What, what are they and how do they deal with London? Well, um, I, I started out some 15 years ago uh, with an idea to write a book about London in the 20th century. And when that was done, I was asked to do London the 19th century and then London the 18th century. And I've just... Uh, the 18th century book came out in March this year, so that's the end, as far as I'm concerned, of a 15-year journey. Presumably, though, that could keep going back and back, couldn't it? Well, I couldn't do it. I mean, it, these are sort of big projects. You know, it's at least six years' work to do a book like this. And and really, I didn't want to take on another massive project of that kind. I still want to write about London all the time. But uh, to think, you know, that I would commit myself to a six-year project uh, when I'm getting old and frail, you know, it's, um, it's, uh, it's, it's too bad to think about. What about uh, Chris? As far as London goes, of course, it's the seat of national political power. How much of your work has been specifically about London and how much has reached much further than that? Well, figures like Boris get a lot of play because it's, it's not because it's to do with London. It's because it's Boris is Boris. Uh, I, I used to travel around the world with Margaret Thatcher and um, and um, John Major um, for several years, and um, London stories um, do occur, obviously. But um, where I work in the Press Association, um, we're sort of national, and London is only a part of that. So it, it is really only a fraction of what, what I have done over the years uh, has been related to London specifically. I mean, there are very few people um, on this earth who whose surname you don't have to use at all I mean you just say Boris you know who you're talking about a few years ago you just said Enoch and you know who you, who, who you were talking about there are very few like that and Boris is one of them it's not so much his London connection as um, himself as a character uh, um, you know who is is unique in, in political life at the moment Stephen Water your description of your art is uh, it's kind of difficult to imagine I, I guess and maybe a good place to start here would be to have a look at the representations that you've made of London they're very very complex very detailed items we've we've got a couple here that we can talk through and I'll try and sort of make a word picture as we go well what I have here is my uh, new subterranean map of London Um, in 2010 London Transport Museum came to me and asked for a uh, for a commission and uh, having seen my island piece it was a portrait of London that celebrated its geography its local idiosyncrasies there's kind of stereotypes and tongue-in-cheek jibes and uh, of the nature of celebrity culture and very hard and dry history uh that so with the subterranean map i um what it didn't have in the island was the the old lost rivers of london so that got me thinking about what to make for the london transport museum and their rich design history so i decided to go and do a subterranean map of london myself so just angling it so you guys can see 
basically it goes from Stratford in the east to kind of Wormwood Scrubs on the west, Clapham in the south and Highgate in the north. And it geographically accurately tracks many, the, the transport system, the bowels of London, which are the fresh waterways, the lost rivers... Just as you were zooming in there, I noticed a couple of things, I, I think. First of all, the, the level of detail is kind of deceptive. We started out and it looked like, well, not dissimilar to a sort of a nighttime version of the tube map or something like that. But as we zoom in, we realise that uh, there, there's a, a colossal amount of detail. First, it looks like buildings in the style of those maps from the 1800s. But in fact, everything uh, on here is, is words. Mostly words. Yeah, there's no key in this in this map, which is unlike most of my others. Yeah, uh, I mean, I could spend you know all the all the time talking through. Well, the well don't, don't don't do that. <laughs> let's, uh, let, 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 let let's bring it in to the conversation. It, it plays loosely with the term underground. I mean, it tracks pro- well-known prostitution sites, dogging tracks, etc. Well-known murders that happened underground. And also the infrastructure and some very quirky infrastructure such as the mail rail and some of the quasi-secret governmental deep-level tunnels. Some of this stuff uh, must cross over, uh, Jerry, with what you've been looking at in your... (laughs) If you can remember back that far, the first in the uh, series of your trilogy. Yeah, I mean, what's what's amazing about the map is that um, if you you go out, as it were, from, you know, fairly large scale, it looks... Underground London looks almost solid in its density and complexity, and um, it appears all even more dense than the streetscape itself. Uh, there's more going on underground than overground. I mean, it's an extraordinary uh, map. One thing that I want to ask you, with the idea of representing London in mind, and of course we've just had the uh, Leveson report just yesterday, which perhaps brings into focus the question of truth in representation. And we know truth can be subjective, and there's also the idea that one person's truth is, is very different from another's. C- can we look at that from our different viewpoints? Mm. Um, first of all, historically, how do you go yeah. about winkling out what is true and what isn't? Well, I mean, historians deal in evidence, and um, you you can't just, as it were, rely on a single piece of evidence. You need triangulation, you know, to to make sure that you've got the evidence, as much evidence as you can, indicating that these things happened, there were these trends in society at any particular point in time. I mean, truth is there. I know, you know, we always think of it, I you know, truth, the word in inverted commas, but historians are there to dig out as close as they can get to reality. What strikes me is that Chris and Stephen are both essentially creating the materials that historians of the future are likely to be, calling, as, as I, you yourself, Jerry, that historians are going to be calling upon. How would you go about evaluating, for example, whether Stephen's map has something worth uh, looking at in it, something that's of historical value rather than just a, a sort of an impression of that subjective time? Well, I think um, if you're looking at a history book, most historians would tell you where their evidence comes from. And I don't necessarily expect, you know, Stephen to tell us where he's got all of the evidence for his map, but somewhere there's an underpinning to what he's giving us. And historians expose that underpinning. Not everyone else, you know, does. But that is one of the way, I I suppose, in which historians check out whether other historians have got things right or closely right. So is is there something in that case to be said for the idea that the more people say something, the more seriously you're going to take it as you look at it? Uh, not necessarily, because, uh, you know, um, 
a lot of people can be wrong about something. Uh, but but I think it is, you know, it is it is very difficult to get to sometimes the reality of everyday life in Georgian London. You know, it, it's a hard thing to do. But at the end of the day, you need to try and work in the archives, see what people were writing in their letters, look at what's, you know, put in the newspapers, which are extremely important sources, although always, you know, ones that have to be checked out in many ways. But, uh, you know, without newspapers, historians would, would be more or less blind if they're if they're social historians uh, and so it, it's a question really i think of trying to unearth as much as possible and to reaching a view on the basis of this you know i've been writing this stuff for ages this seems right to me and something else doesn't and this is the evidence that i've used to reach that conclusion yeah, I mean, I would say for, for this particular map, it's mostly through reading my research, not so much many ground trips or underground trips, but there were a few of those. So through books, the internet, through contacts and through speaking to people and verbal histories. But what I, I'm interested in is is working with 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 my instinct, as well as through what's given to me or what, through what comes to me. I'm like a filter in a way to gauging an, an inherited history. I think that's, that's important. That idea of, of filtering, and uh, Chris, I want to come to you on this as well, seems like it has, the, it has the capacity to become dangerous on one level. And I know, Chris, you've received a reputation. Perhaps this is why the, the press bar is named after you, but you've got a, a, an earned reputation for not having any side. You just deliver the facts in your reporting. If, if you are the filter through which this information passes, how do you go about avoiding giving it an angle? Um, well, it, uh, it's not, it is difficult. I mean, you give an angle to, to, to make it a saleable story, uh, n- not for political reasons. I mean, t- as um, Nick Robinson, the BBC uh, uh, political editor, said the other day, uh, impartiality um, is very, very hard to achieve, um, like total harmony in a marriage, uh, and you, you, you strive towards it. Uh, I... I have a political view it does not I hope come out at all in my stories because when you're doing a story even if you're the most ardent conservative or the most rabid socialist if the story is against either uh, to the detriment of either one or the other party it doesn't worry you at all even if it's against your own political um, judgment Um, because when you're a journalist you you just get eaten up by the job and the the politics of it um, is is quite irrelevant it 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 never worries me people um, people used to ask me students used to ask me how did I vote at the last general election and I used to very pompously say um, it's not of your business and now but I stopped saying that because I said I, when they ask me as they always do I say uh, well at the, a few elections ago I always voted for uh, the local conservative candidate because he was Norman Tebbit the reason I voted for him because he was such good value to Fleet Street and, and I would do that again <laughs> so assuring your own job there in fact <laughs> absolutely yes yeah that was quite funny because you used ardent conservatives or ra- rabid um or whatever uh socialist yeah I, I knew you were a conservative voter from that very moment <laughs> so i realized as i said it 
<laughs> what, what about the um and i I've got, I've got to say chris i want to plumb your experience of the political scene for anecdotes and you know where they're going to be and i don't know where to winkle them out i just want to ask you the most open question can you give us a couple of juicy moments from your uh, from your political reporting life um well yes i think probably um one of them was a, a laugh a, a very amusing story really of um the a.a uh, a. milne characters eeyore tigger and piglet and so forth being holed up as they still are in the museum in new york and um a, a, a labor mp called gwyneth dunwoody who's now last dead um tabled a question about this can we get them back like the Elgin marbles the other way and um i did this story and um it funnily enough it, it, it took off and it was a good story it took off to such a degree um that um the uh, the the New York Post um, splashed on it, uh, describing Gwyneth Dunwoody, who was a rather large lady, as if I may use the term, a fat old cow, in the, in, on the front page. Um, we asked Tony Blair for a comment. Of course, he was far too pompous to give us a comment on this story. You know, it's beneath his dignity. We asked President Clinton. Clinton gave us a quote on it. And, I mean, it's amazing what you can get. The American politicians I've always found at the top level are far more, not necessarily approachable, although they are that, but far easier to get on with than um, than British ones, generally speaking, um, at that level. I also actually scooped... Um, uh, Thatcher's um, uh, Thatcher's resignation. I got this phone call from Sir Bernard Ingham, who was a press secretary, and um, I, I was away from my desk at the time, and I snatched a piece of paper from the secretary's hand, and we, we had a tug of war. She'd just written a very uh, neat letter, and um, we had this tug of war while I was being told that Thatcher was quitting, and I won the battle of the of the note paper and then I heard in the background this voice saying it's a funny old world I said to Bernard Ingham on the phone is that Mrs Thatcher she said yes and of course she never ever lost an election ever um in parliament um and and nor did she lose this one because if you remember she came four votes ahead of Michael Heseltine but it wasn't enough to avoid a second ballot and um people realized well they assumed that she'd get defeated on the second ballot, and she um, she called it a day. Then, in tears, part of history. Then, in fact, we'll be talking about working relationships. I suspect in uh, a few moments, perhaps with Cameron and Clegg, um, foregrounded. I, I don't know, but I think the First World War resulted in a coalition government didn't it which was seen at the time as being a very positive thing and you're writing about the history of the first world war in in london at the moment jerry yeah i am that's right there was a coalition in fact there was a coalition uh, there were two coalitions you know during the war and one uh, of those the second survived the war and um, the lloyd george liberals and so on with a great deal of conservative support but it didn't last very long and uh, the coalition experience, I think, in the First World War, even in you know the situation of total war, was not a terribly happy one. There was a great deal of backbiting, uh, fighting behind the scenes, and the Liberal Party, of course, you know, was torn apart so badly that it never recovered, uh, hasn't recovered yet. And so, you know, it was an enormously punishing process for the Liberal Party itself, which was the big 
loser of the war. The Labour Party, in many ways, was the big gainer and, of course, uh, formed a, a minority government in 1924. But, yeah, I, I think that coalitions in general, I mean, certainly in that period, and I think, you know, you can argue even in the Second World War, which I suppose is the most successful coalition, you know, under Churchill from 1940, um, they are not necessarily a happy vehicle for those politicians involved in them. Uh, and they're very fragile and difficult, I think. And, and I would have thought that's pretty much evidenced by where we are today. But that uh, abrasion is necessary, really, isn't it, for the, the right sort of decision-making, perhaps, under those circumstances? Well, under the circumstances, I'm not sure. You wouldn't, if it was one party in power, you wouldn't say that abrasiveness was, was really desirable um, because a party tearing itself apart is not uh, something in which voters put their trust. And it seems to me that the coalition, after all, which no one voted for, is it plainly won't fight an election as a coalition because it's it's tearing itself apart almost every day. Isn't it part of a mature society to have a uh, more than a two-party well state at the minute? And I mean, I only have to look at modern parliaments to see their curvaceous shape. They're either oval or round. And, um, well, Parliament acts like a football terrace as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I mean, I'm all in favour of, um, of the, 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 what, the way the House of Commons is set out, like a cockpit. I mean, you've got ba- ba- uh, roughly uh, 350 people of one political view on one side and, and there's roughly the same number on the other side and they fight and squabble. And to have it like a cockpit is, to, is, is much better than having it, I think, semicircular and, um, you know, tame and milksoppy. I, I really think um, it, it, it's a very fine way to, to run a parliament. And I think the Scottish parliament and so forth are all semicircular. There's a posh word for that which eludes me. And, um, uh, you know, it, it's not so good. You, you, you need a battle. You need blood. And um, that is why the distance between the opposition benches and the government benches in the House of Commons are described as and are, in fact, two sword lengths apart. So, you know, um, which I think is a very splendid way of dealing with it. Do the same sort of animosities or confrontations exist within the reporting scene? No. Um, No. Um, The the press gallery is a very amiable organisation. But then, so is the House of Commons, so are members of the House of Commons when they're not actually sitting in the House of Commons. I mean, there's one or two of them um, get on their soapbox and breathe fire and uh, brimstone and so forth and yet when they come outside they're you know they're like pussycats it's quite astonishing really and you used to get um, a great man in my opinion um dr ian paisley and uh, jerry fit who was on the other side of the uh, argument the late jerry fit i mean they wouldn't be seen together outside uh, parliament but or, or inside the chamber but once you get them in the members' lobby, you see them having quite amiable chats. It's quite bizarre, really. People don't believe it when they see it. Stephen, let's talk about your working life. And the idea is that the artist's life is a solitary one. And yet you've certainly collaborations with a number of institutions. I think we've got the, the London Transport Commission that we're going to talk about, the British Library, the VNA, Deutsche Bank. So you're not acting in isolation by any means here. There's a lot of interactivity by the sounds of it. Um, well, I was speaking to uh, like Ian Sinclair and Grayson Perry about uh, 
that sort of collecting of information and going on a journey. Now, my journey has been in the last 10 years very solitary, very much based in the studio. Uh, after, say, the first 20 odd years of my life being very explorative. And these maps are actually quite solitary in their making. There's, there, there are some meetings and, as I say, trips and pilgrimages myself, but not so much as, 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 as their work is involved at the minute. So, yeah, I feel like a bit of a monk, actually. Um, I mean, I've been in Berlin and I came back. I was in Berlin for three years, came back last year to London again. And uh, really, I've been I've got about four and a half years of work that that needs showing now because, uh, yeah, I've been in, I've got cabin fever, actually. <laughs> right. So it's that annoying uh, having to do the, the administrative side of it now. Yeah. Um, but I'm I, I'm looking forward to that. And it's great to be here today. Meet some some interesting strangers. I was wondering about the, uh, the whole uh, sort of Twitter blogging. We were talking before we started recording, Chris, about about blogging and touching on that as a subject. And it seems to me there's well, there's certainly been lots of cases recently where people's knee jerk reactions on Twitter have had to be treated in the same way as journalism and have been subject to the same rules and, and penalties and so forth of course Stephen your, your work is not immediate you spend a long time putting this together ditto Jerry it seems to me on that level Chris you're working on a, a rather different level it, it happens it's immediate it's out there in the public could I ask you about this whole Twitter business I find it incredible that people like Sally Burko and co um, uh, don't understand that what what they what they tweet is just as much publication as, as what the Daily Mail is doing every day I mean it's it seems to be so obvious and Burke, Mrs Burko says oh you need to have a a degree in law to be able to tweet these days that's absolute nonsense you just use your common sense i mean and um if she's going to get um y- you know uh comeuppance from lord mccalpine well it's a it's her own fault and i think a lot of people will now realize that you can't just um be um gratuitously offensive and libelous about people on twitter um, just as you can't in newspapers without paying a price for it i agree i, I- I can't really understand the Twitter phenomenon myself. I mean, it's just this thought that somehow my immediate thoughts and actions are of interest to other people is an extraordinary sort of megalomania, which I think has, you know, penetrated the whole of society. And I, I, I it's a very strange phenomenon as far as I'm concerned. But I, I confess, you know, I'm old-fashioned in uh, with this regard. Yeah, I think there's. Uh well you come back to the filter argument or the issue that i was talking about and um i mean i had a similar well it reminds me of uh when i was promoting my island map uh which was in 2008 and uh actually to put the record straight on that one wikipedia which i made far too much about uh, as part of my research was just a small part of my research and that got a number of sniffs anyway and and i kind of did it just to to stoke the fire in the end you know as as a kind of preemptive snipe at, at the conservative sniffs that i knew would come but you know wikipedia like twitter and these social media they they remove an official filter house or a publishing house from the opinions but that 
can actually be a very interesting and democratic form. But with Twitter, I mean, I don't want to hear what uh, people have had for breakfast, particularly. Um, uh, that's a space filler uh, that you do to entertain people whilst people are getting ready for the important stuff. Well, the, the, the argument goes, surely, why should particularly reporting be the preserve of some particular institutions or some particular individuals? Why shouldn't it be opened up? Why should these, uh, these rules be applied to, to everybody? Why can't we just say what we, what we want to say? Well, but they're not reporting, are they? I mean, they're not, they don't. This is just the transference of a quick, immediate, knee-jerk opinion, which comes out of nowhere, which doesn't necessarily... Uh, find itself based in any knowledge at all it's just repeating what somebody else has said it's a sort of in general it's a gossip machine isn't it isn't there something worrying about the fact that the the gossip has been finding its way onto mainstream media in recent weeks where we've had presenters behaving as though they're people on yeah. twitter what does that mean is there a problem sort of seeping up through these media channels i i absolutely agree i mean uh, I, i've never understood um, why um, people like Stephen Fry probably has about 50 million followers. Uh, I mean, but, but they do have. I mean, I agree with you. Who cares that, uh, what I had for breakfast or you had for breakfast? But it's apparently that 50,000 people seem to bother about what Stephen Fry had to breakfast. I find that astonishing. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I don't... Uh, I have, I've only been on Twitter once, actually, in my time, but I'm not a, a, a Luddite. <laughs> but, uh, but I wouldn't negate Twitter for the reasons that perhaps you're coming up here with. I, you know, I mean, many great bits of technology have come about through chance and through other avenues. And I wouldn't negate uh, Twitter's future influence on the world. So... It totally depends on what is written, not the technology itself. I agree. I agree. I absolutely agree with that. I mean, it gives millions of people an opportunity to get in on the fun, really, and not just journalists. Uh, but at the same time, as we've already said, um, you know, that, that, that there are rules about defamation and that those apply just as much to Twitter as to um, the, the Times and all the, other, all the other journals and so forth. So, um, but I agree, you know, I... I, I people want to do it let them get on with it and it's a good thing and it also does provide a source of stories actually uh, from time to time uh, um, i mean i follow i don't know i don't with a capital f i don't know how to do that quite frankly but i i look up kathy lett who is an australian author and um she is so funny and witty i do what are called quotes of the day every day of the year about 10 and they get in all the newspapers and um i always look her up because she's always full of very fine puns and i'm a great man you know puns are my livelihood lord McAlpine has been defamed i mean he, he can be defamed in, in a newspaper or on twitter it's no lesser defamation and um the the, the rules of defamation are not um just applicable to um, newspapers uh, now um, there's no reason what you publish however you publish it if you publish it in the Beano or, or Dandy or, or, or on Twitter or in Caged Birds Gazette it's still defamation and uh, there's no difference between that and um, the, the Times in my opinion 
That was the soundbite on this subject. <laughs> to my mind, that's fantastic. We should probably turn to London stories at uh, some point round about now. Before we find out why half of us don't want to be where we are, a quick word from our sponsors, who are, as ever, audible.co.uk. To make sure you're never without entertainment, they have offered you a free digital audiobook from their huge catalogue. It's 60,000 digital audiobooks on offer there. And uh, if you sign up for a 30-day free trial of their audible service then uh, you'll get your free book which you'll be able to keep forever and you can burn your book and uh, any future books if you stay on uh, onto uh, cds you can uh, put them on your iphone ipad compatible phones mp3 players etc etc it's a good service i use it mr walter here is gesturing which i suspect that <laughs> might mean that he likes it as well to get your free audiobook you need to go to www.audible.co.uk forward slash londonist and click through mr walter yeah i think i got um uh Mary Schiller's Frankenstein from there, but uh, it was quite funny because I I downloaded a audio book of of, of J G Ballard's Crash, and um, well I I wanted to hear it so well, I, I was driving up to Liverpool on a return journey on my on by myself and and had that going uh, that was quite dangerous actually it was hilarious so I wouldn't advise that exactly <laughs> right not that but not that particular <laughs> title for those circumstances you know, you know, pe- penises vulvas and dashboards you know of uh, cracking up and almost going into a somnambulistic kind of crash myself it was hilarious I think that's the first time that particular phrase has been used on this show you'll be pleased to know uh, it ties in with a London story that we can't say too much about because it's sub GDK at the moment, but uh, it perhaps would lead on to, to other idiosyncrasies and eccentricities in London. Somebody's been mounting the Duke of Cambridge. Yes, the, the, the naked man. And, and it struck me that the story itself, you know, just is a reminder that London is a place where eccentricities can be freely followed, that you know, live and let live, I suppose, has been part of the Londoners' philosophy for, well, certainly over the last 300 years, because people have been, you know, saying that that London is a city where really you can be yourself and where there is no one sort of twitching the curtains to see what's going on. Uh, A friend of mine lives in, uh, is from Wiltshire, she lives in London, and um, she said she was on the tube the other day and saw a woman with a goose on the tube. And, of course, nobody batted an eyelid. And whereas, you know, in Wiltshire, everybody would say to her, why have you got a goose then? And I remember one of my first experiences in London was when I was a teenager coming out from the country and seeing, you know, a meticulously outfitted city gent, bowler hat, um, striped waistcoat and coat, but he was wearing rolled-up jeans and bother boots and carrying a furled umbrella. And it struck me at the time that only in London, you know, could these sorts of things happen. Um, And the naked man, it seemed to me, I mean, I know these things go on elsewhere, but it's one of those sort of nice eccentricities of London, I think, that that such a thing, um, actually, people walking by, I imagine it was only the tourists who stopped and stared. Uh, The Londoners would just say, yeah, it's a naked man up a statue. What about if we go a little further back into history? What sort of characters do we encounter? Well, if you take Samuel Johnson, who uh, came to London from Staffordshire, and it, I suspect, you know, was driven out, really, by his eccentricities. He couldn't really find work. His eccentricities played against him. 
Um, he had something like, you know, modern researchers say he had something like Tourette's syndrome. And he, in the street, he would gyrate, shout out, not step on the, you know, cracks between the paving stones, walk in a certain way, that sort of thing. And he would always, in London streets, have a little admiring crowd of boys and girls behind him. But London was the place where his eccentricities did not tell against him and where his genius could shine out even though he was this very eccentric and rather awkward character. Um, And it's one of the reasons, I think, why he, you know, lived most of his life in London and once he came here, he stayed. There's a fellow I'm very keen to get onto the show, uh, if, if we can track him down, um, who, who apparently processes around town with a little golden pyramid on his head. Uh, he's, he's somewhere in the centre of town, around about St Martin's Lane, something like that. Yeah, we'll, all, we'll all look out for him now, I think. That's, uh, yeah. It could well be a health-giving uh, thing or something I, I, like that. I, uh, people with idiosyncrasies exist in all parts of the world. Berlin, as you know, I'd be here all day talking about the the weird and wonderful characters that are there but um yeah i mean i wanted to talk about uh just a bit about the squatting issue as well if that's right. let's let's go to squatting yes now it's illegal to to squat residential uh properties so now they're going to commercial properties fry and barnet community library is now a community library let's rabble rouse that a bit and, and and say well you know is it is it is it the tories particularly or or or, or all governments that are that are right in in making squatting like illegal well we've got we've got a very pressing uh, housing crisis going on at the moment don't we well surely uh, in the 70s and 80s i mean using the story jerry would know more about that, that than me but uh you know, squatting's very, very is not so noticeable nowadays, is it? Really? No, I mean, I think that's right. The, the um, there was a, there was a rash of squatting after the First World War because of the housing shortage, and there were some celebrated squats in London after the Second World War with the Communist Party involved, and um, where where some of the squatters were prosecuted for a criminal conspiracy. Well, could we have more detail there? Yeah. Well, um, there was a massive housing shortage in. London after the Second World War, the, you know, so much had been bombed. People were returning from the army. There was a, a real shortage of family accommodation, and um, so squatting took place in a whole in, in a variety of places. But there was a very famous case of a mansion in Kensington being being squatted, organised by the Communist Party, and by a, a hotel in Bloomsbury, which had been. I think, uh, left empty by, the, by one of the government ministries as they moved their offices out of this hotel, former hotel. And that was squatted by the Communist Party. Um, and actually, it became a worldwide phenomenon. I mean, this was a big news story throughout the world. The Labour government, you know, couldn't stand the Communist Party, hated the Communists much more than the, even the Tories, and um, organised a prosecution of about, I think, four communist activists. Um, they got in front of a very sympathetic judge who banned them over to keep the peace, didn't send them to prison. And uh, the squatting movement then sort of died away or was organised. Uh, in effect, what happened was that local authorities were given power to requisition empty houses and then use them for housing. So the problem was recognised by government and a different mechanism 
you know, which took sort of popular protest out of it, uh, was uh, constructed to make more housing available for family accommodation in London? Well, I, I mean, I think it is um, ongoing, uh, you know, which is one of the politicians' favourite words. Uh, whether it will ever happen or, or not, I don't know. But, I mean, even in the days when um, squatting was um, not illegal, generally speaking, I, I remember a case, uh, there the were ways of getting around it, uh, the case where a barman at the House of Commons went on his holidays, came back, found his flat full of squatters. He went to the police and said, sorry, matey, we can't do anything, it's, um, it's not against the law. But what actually happened was that a number of metropolitan police officers in the middle of the night in civilian clothing, um, accompanied by two or three very large and savage-looking dogs, uh, went and banged on the door of this flat, didn't do any more, but they just uh, filtered away, as you would. And um, so that was how that, was how that uh, barman got his flat back. Um, quite illicit and illegal, and I'm sure heads would have rolled, but um, it, it achieved what he wanted to achieve, and there was no victim apart from the squatters. Rather than barman's houses, it's in fact pubs that are being squatted here. Let's get some of the detail on this, Stephen. Well, the Black Bull Members Club, which was only open uh, on the days that uh, Chelsea were at home. So that's closed down a couple of months ago. And so, yeah, uh, other, other I mean, there's plenty of, let's face it, empty pubs. The Lamb Inn in Romford, Charlie Butler in Mortlake, are just a number of them that are, are now uh, ripe for living. What, what do you feel? It sounds as though you might be in sympathy with the idea of people uh, moving into these properties. Well, why not? I, th- I think there's um, a lot of empty space in in, in London. Um, I mean, I'm all, I'm all for, for, for entrepreneurship, and I mean, I'm not particularly swaying one, one way or the other, but um, I just think uh, this is a, a grab for money and everything to do with you know, that's what annoys me about politics is that the main issue tends to always be surrounding fiscal or financial concerns. And, um, you know, squatting is on the, the, the sharp end of, of, of the space issue where I bet you there's loads of office space that's doing nothing in London and that can be used to help people out. If there's where there's a will there's a way basically and if the money is going to be always be the issue there's going to be the sharp end chris moncrief do you think there is a will to uh, join two and two together there and uh, make it make uh, sense I, yeah i mean they've been talking about squatting um and, tr- and trying to make it illegal for about two decades and they've only just come up with um, what is really only a partial solution i think one of the things that has to be recognised is that people who squat um, should also be paying their way somehow. And, um, you know, if, if they're just living on other people's um, enterprise, then, you know, I think it's wrong. Uh, well, I think it's wrong anyway to break into somebody's house. I know that you don't actually break in, you don't do any damage, otherwise you have broken the law before it was illegal, uh, illegal but... Um, you know, I am not, generally speaking, on the side of the squatter. Well, I, I perhaps am slightly on the other side of the table on this. Let me go back to, to say, Berlin. There's a place called Tachlis that was... Um, it was an old uh, Jewish department store and bombed in the Second World War. And it was taken over by squatters when the wall went up, which fell in the Mitte district in the, on the east side of the wall. And it, it only in the last few months has it actually now been bought 
back by people, the developers, basically. This was a, a cult, uh, an institution in that part of the city. And I think there's a bit of room for, uh, for both sides of culture. I do not believe that everyone, 100% of people should be paying their way in a completely monetarist system. There's another side to life. And I think we just need to give a moment's thought to, you know, the underlying problems which are underpinning squatting and always have, that there's a real housing shortage in London, particularly for those who are not well off. The housing benefit cap is going to make things you know, infinitely worse. Social housing is, uh, new social housing is almost non-existent. Um, councils aren't allowed to build anymore um, and housing associations uh, a, a lot of their funding has has dried up so it seems to me that it you know circumstances are being created where it is not only rational to think that people are going to take the law into their hands but actually quite just that they should so the law that's recently been passed then finally making this illegal, what what do you well, make of that at I, this point? Well, I, I suspect actually that there will be, this will be a law full of loopholes. And we're already seeing one of those being exploited now, which is the commercial property thing. And I suspect there will be a lot of empty housing that... Uh, is awaiting rehabilitation either in the private sector or in the uh, social housing sector where people will seize their opportunity and move in because it's been empty for longer than, you know, is tolerable in a situation where, frankly, there ain't enough housing to go around. Yeah, and and on the other side of that, people that, you know, private people that buy a property should be able to get squatters out easier but um, like um, most laws, I'm afraid, um, especially in this country post-war, it seem to be served on a piddly piece of rivita. I want a big sandwich of a law where you, 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 make a, you, you make a law on one side and then improve the situation on the other. So the government, if they're, if they're making squatting illegal in, in residential buildings, then they have to put in place something on the other side that makes the, the the demand for private residents less taxing and uh, and and pungent as it is now when and, and clearly we're only getting one side i mean i'm not a great expert here but it, it seems utterly ridiculous that 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 governments are, are, are saying that they're being responsible for for improving the affordability of housing in london because that is clearly not the case the old idealist you. <laughs> well, yeah, of course. That's why I'm not a politician. <laughs> We've been talking about people moving in. Let's talk about people moving out. Um, Chris, you've got the well, story, yeah, I think. Um, a YouGov poll, um, which has just been published, which suggests, as we've just heard, that 52% of Londoners would want to get out. Um, I, well, for a start, I am not sure that I believe this survey. I mean, uh, we get surveys every day uh, on every subject under the sun. And I personally, I know that... Uh, you know, individual cases make bad law, but I personally never been asked any question about any by any survey in all my 81 years, and I'm sure the law of averages demands that at least one person should have asked me. So I don't necessarily believe this. I mean, they may have done a poll of say 600 to a thousand people. I really do not think, however scientifically they say they do it, these 
uh, that adds up to a row of beans. I don't think they can say blithely, 52% of Londoners want to get out. I, don't, I just don't believe it. And I also think that a lot of surveys, not necessarily that particular one, are never, ever carried out. I mean, for instance... Um, um, people who make various brand foods uh, claim that um, if you don't get, uh, you, you know, claim that you've got uh, so many percentage of the nation have a pint of milk every day. Uh, well, how do they know? They don't know. And um, I don't believe half these surveys. And it's just a way of getting stories into the papers. I don't, I don't blame them for trying, but newspapers should be a lot more wary in printing them. I wonder who the beneficiary was in this one, though, because there's, there's not a sort of an obvious brand attack. Or no, there isn't. It's a YouGov thing. It's it's not. It, it it it's sort of commercial, but not commercial in that sense. Yeah, um, there was something interesting in that um, little article, which was that uh, people that lived in desirable places of London were less likely to say that they didn't want to live anywhere anywhere else. So. You know, I mean, if if you if you're lucky enough to live close enough, uh, uh, and in a what would be a, you know, desirable area or whatever, but you know, you, where well, you don't have to get the tube from the suburbs every day into town on rush hour, things like that, then yeah. then then life quality is going to be a lot better, and also yeah. it's a mindful. Yeah, I, I agree, but at place. the same time, people go for a property that is near the tube. Yeah. They do that anyway. So, I mean, you know, they, they know that they're going to spend their life on the underground. And, um, well, anyway, it, it's a matter of opinion, but I don't believe it. <laughs> That's your opinion. Um, Jerry, do you live in London? I don't, actually. But um, <laughs> You've already escaped, have you? <laughs> yeah, through um, uh, force of circumstances, I got a job out. Well, I applied for a job and it was uh, outside London. But when I first came to live in London in 1970, and I was from... Dorset, uh, so a sort of migrant. What I found was that um, all the London-born, all the Londoners born and bred, were desperate to get out. And it was the newcomers who were, you know, enjoying London, loved the sort of multicultural atmosphere and all the rest of it. And there was a real split. Now, I think, you know, behind this YouGov poll, first of all, you'd really want to know what the questions are and how they were, you know, framed so that... You can have a survey which tends to get the answers it, you know, is is um, designed for. But I suspect that if you'd asked, you know, are you London born and bred? Are you a migrant? You'd get a slightly different take on who wants to get out and who wants to stay. That's that's my theory here. Well, there's the implication then that people who, well, somebody who's moved here, they've made an active choice to be exactly. here in the first exactly. place. Yeah. yeah, I would say that uh, from zone three onwards, you get a lot of people that, would be native Londoners often. I mean, they're brought up in the suburbs because of the schools. And, you know, often, I mean, the amount of times I've been in, out in London and people have said, oh, you're, you're actually a, a native Londoner. Uh, and I'm like, yeah, there's there's probably about 7 million of us. Let's hope there there isn't um, going to be a, a ring as such, like perhaps Paris has become. The old lady in the centre is full of uh, mostly people that can afford it or, 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 you know, and so forth. And then the outside becomes like this sort of dodgy ring. Uh, I think one of the great things about London is is that integrative uh, process of planning over the years. And um, well, long may that continue. Whereabouts in town are you based? Uh, Sort of Highgate way. 
Hi, Gate, right. And uh, Chris, you're a Waltham Stowian. Stowe, yes, near Waltham Stowe. So you're in the outer, you're in the outer ring, according well, to the get, Parisian setter. We, um, where, where, where I live, it's a little area called Hyams Park. There's a lot of people from the born and bred in the East End who move there, thinking they're going up market. I, I mean, I don't know whether they are or not, but um, but that's that, 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 we've got a lot of people there who but, who but, uh, you are living the dream, Chris. It's like um, the, you are living that, that that old dream of the hamlet that's half an hour from the centre of London. You know, getting getting out. Well, <laughs> I, 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 the nearer I I can get to the centre of London, the the better for me. I'm all for um, I'm. I'm all for the grime and the, and, and the um, pollution and the smog of London. I love it. And um, it put me in the countryside, I, I wouldn't know which way to turn. <laughs> uh, on the subject of the uh, attractiveness or otherwise of London, uh, we asked uh, for suggestions of the prettiest sites in London on our Facebook page, and answers have come uh, <laughs> aplenty. Uh, any of these uh, catch your attention, Jerry? But Waterloo Bridge, I, I agree with that. Oh yes, if you stand with the the nameless first contributor, if yes. you if you stand on Waterloo Bridge and look in either direction and say so, London is ugly, then you have no soul. I quite agree. Well, we got Peter Collins here. The half who want to leave were probably brought up in other parts of the UK and that have come here to make their fortunes. Away with ye, he says. <laughs> and there's Olga S, who says anyway, who wants to be pretty? Let Paris be pretty. We laugh in the face of pretty. <laughs> that sounds like that, that might be on the same page as you, Chris. Well, yeah. I mean, this chap here—he he sounds just like me. I could have said it myself. I'm just—I'm just a city boy. I find the madness, dirt, and noise of London beautiful. He says, and um, I would say to that, here, here. <laughs> what is the name of your soulmate there? Uh, Mark Rowland. Mark Rowland, thank you, Mark. Uh, let's have one more, Stephen. Uh, well, Rob Smith site some places like you know, sit by the fountain in the inner temple uh, look at the sun on the river at Blackwall Point <laughs> you've got a firm idea of Rob's character by the sounds of it <laughs> thank you all our uh, contributors to uh, to that section we're right up against the, the clock unfortunately so we're going to have to tie off but not before I subject now this, this could be quite an interesting one there's a lot of knowledge going on in this room this is the five questions of the historical quiz we have a professor of history uh, <laughs> to the that left. Uh, I'm going to uh, just throw myself at your mercy here with these questions and see what happens. Uh, five is points. It, is it first call? Yes, it's first call. Uh, first, first, uh, first to scream uh, gets a go at it. Um, here we go. Monday, the 19th of November, 1558. Queen Elizabeth I travels to where on her accession to the throne. Which part of London does she go to? And by the way, she is met there by the bishops and then escorted through London. But which part of town White did she Hall go Palace. to? Not Whitehall Palace. Lambeth. Not Lambeth. Greenwich? No, Caroline, not Greenwich. Or, or is it the old, the old monastery in, like, Barking? The old monastery in well, Barking? Is, that, is that a truth? Now, yeah. Barking Monastery, yeah. Yeah, it's not... That's very interesting. Anyway, yeah, no, not I that. did away with that, so sorry, that's totally wrong. Okay, I'll give, you, <laughs> I'll give you a clue. We have mentioned this bit of town in the last ten minutes or so. It's a really surprising one. This part of London, in the last ten minutes or so... Walthamstow. No, it's not Walthamstow. <laughs> the Temple. No. Barnet. No. You should get Highgate. it. Though. It is Highgate. Oh, yeah. Yes. We got there. Um, Tuesday, the 20th of November, 1992. A fire. 
where? Uh, Windsor, Windsor. King's. Chris, Chris is there, yes, yeah. it is. It's Windsor Castle. £40 million worth of damage to over 100 rooms. Uh, we're kind of used to hearing such big figures recently that £40 million actually doesn't seem that no, much anymore, does it? £40 million, then. Yes, it would. Um, Wednesday, the 21st of November, 1695. Which great composer dies at his home in Westminster, the cause of his death being unclear, with theories ranging from tuberculosis to chocolate poisoning? Henry Purcell. Henry Purcell it is indeed, yes. One all. Thursday, the 22nd of November, 1977, Concorde, the collaborative aviation project between the French and the English, takes off on its first scheduled commercial flight from London to where? Uh, New York. It is New York. He's there straight away. Yes. Uh, Two to Stephen. So uh, all we can do now is uh, have an equaliser here from one of you, perhaps. Or Stephen's going to romp home. Friday, the 23rd of November, 1887. William Henry Pratt is born in in Honor Oak. In Honor Oak. (laughs) In that place. He would become a successful Hollywood actor, best known for his portrayals of Frankenstein's monster. Under which stage name? Ah... No, just a minute. Lugosi, was it? No. Bella Lugosi. Not Bella Lugosi. Right, general direction. Yeah. Can't think. We've we've mentioned this person's first name right at the beginning of the show. A very, it's not Boris Karloff. It's Boris oh, Karloff. Boris Karloff. Yeah. Well done. Well done. Um, a magnificent victory and, and a, a punching of the air there from Stephen Walter. Three and, and one each for, uh, for Chris Monkeith and Jerry White. We've got to close there, but not before we get a chance to, to mention uh, what we've got on our personal diaries at the moment in terms of uh, books and shows and collaborations and columns and so forth. You, you were the victor there, Stephen. Would you like to lead off? OK, thanks. Yeah, um, well, I just have an iPad app out at the minute oh, called... Yes. Um, yes. Walterian London that's uh, from uh, w- with Cog app thanks for that guys for starting that's five pounds uh, that that allows you to look in at the island portrait of London above ground and London subterranea below you can interswitch between the two uh, there's posters of the subterranean map at the London Transport Museum shop uh, signed prints and artworks mainly through tag fine arts and yeah, a big solo show of the last four and a half years of my work will be coming up next year, unconfirmed, but you can sign up to the newsletter at stephenwalter.co.uk. stephenwalter.co.uk, and that's with a PH, isn't it? Yeah. Fantastic. And you've got a, a press association uh, column coming out, and, and you're in uh, more, more newspapers than we can... Every week, uh, I wrote the history of the press association, living on a deadline, and I've written a book um, called Wine, Women and Westminster. The first publishers threw it back at me, said, um, said uh, there's no gravitas. I said, I don't do gravitas, I only do rock and roll. And uh, anyway, the next publisher took it. <laughs> Where can we grab a copy? Uh, well, off Amazon. <laughs> it's a good read. I, I shouldn't say that, but uh, it is. <laughs> you're, you're, you're allowed to say that. We've got biased reporting going on here. <laughs> Jerry White. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm working on a book on uh, London, the First World War, which I've got to write by next September, and it comes out with the Bodley Head at uh, Random House in uh, May 2014. That's assuming I write it. <laughs> we hope you do. Have you a, a website? Yes, I do. I have a website. What is it? <laughs> stop, stop playing hard to get. <laughs> www.jerrywhite.co.uk Thank you all for being here today. 
Thank you. Thank you very Thank much. You. Yeah. Very good. Cheerio. That is all for this week. My thanks for this week to my guests, Professor Jerry White, Stephen Walter and Chris Moncrief. Thanks too to Bernie Barkley, Zoe Craig, Rhea Heath and Dave Haste. Theme and incidental music was by Jack Hearn and Rory Anderson. And I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. Waiting for the river's cave Straining for the blueing waves Calling from the shore barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. 
world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.